0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University.
0: Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Jacob Seidel, professor of nutrition and health at the Free University in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. One of the leading experts in Europe and, in fact, around the world on nutrition and food policy, Dr. Seidel is a renowned scientist and has done very interesting and progressive work on food and food policy issues. So thank you for joining us. Sure. Thank you. So I'd like to talk today about community interventions because you and your colleagues and and others elsewhere in Europe are doing some very creative things. So let me just throw it open and, you know, you could start talking about some of the work you're doing, but it's very interesting and important, especially things with children.
1: Right, well, it, it it is about, you know, we've been talking about obesity prevention on a national level for many, many years, maybe decades. And not much has changed, actually. Not much improvement has been made. Um, there's been all kinds of controversial topics about pricing and about marketing and about fruit products being sold in different amounts and, and varieties and things like that. And not much actually happens. I mean, it's still important, but we thought that, actually, if you think about children when they grow up, they live in this environment where you have a family, you have schools and you have neighborhoods where people live in. And actually that most of the important changes need to be made there. And so we we shifted our attention a little bit from national policies to local policies um, and found that very attractive and very um, uh, effective as well. And so the idea is to, to just look at cities or towns as being small nations, you know, where you have different ministries and people responsible for town planning, for safety, for transportation, for education, for recreation, for all kinds of other things. And they decide really what's happening in, the, in a local environment, much more than a federal or national or, uh, government would do. Uh, and we find that if we can get those people on board, that means the politicians, the, the people who are in the local governments, um, they actually are very interested in providing healthy environments for children, uh, especially if it helps them to solve many other problems as well. And so the idea that we developed together with a lot of other European colleagues, uh, mainly in France where they started to do this already in the early 1990s, uh, is that we target more on these local governments but also to local private companies you know, supermarkets, health insurance companies, all kinds of other people that might be influential to make changes possible in local circumstances and get them all on board, together with the parents, together with the schools, and together with all of these other uh, places. It takes a lot of time. People don't like, like it very much when change takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we found that... Um, Our drastic way of doing this sort of, you know, you land into a community, you do severe interventions, you prove that are effective, you write up the results and you go back to your university and do other studies. You know, a year later, nothing much has changed and things have returned back to normal. So if you really want to change, say, the town planning and the transportation system, it takes many, many years, but it's much more sustainable over the long run. So we've taken much more a longer term perspective and taken up sort of a stepwise approach of engaging different segments of the community, create capacity building if we like to say as we like to say in these communities, and make actually um the civilian side of the people, you know, the parents and the people who live there asking for better environments. You know, they are not accepting anymore. There's too much traffic in their neighborhoods. There are no uh, safe places for their children to play outside. And we see that when governments are actually making those changes, these neighborhoods become more popular. House prices go up. Um, the, uh, the politicians that provide these changes are becoming popular, get re-elected because of, the, you know, the changes they've made. It's something that, that really is sustainable and it's, it's helpful. So, so
0: yeah. let's talk about some of the specific things that right. these communities might be doing. So you mentioned traffic-related things or safe places to right. play. What would be other examples of things that they would do in communities?
1: Well, other examples would be uh, like after-school care uh, in sport clubs. You know, most of these sport fields and, and accommodations and are just deserted most of the day. You know, there, there are trainings and used most in the weekends and maybe at evenings. Uh, and we we uh, had projects in which, for instance, the children after school would go there for the rest of the afternoon, and they would have the opportunities to play and to participate in sports. It would create actually increasing memberships to these sport clubs because pe- you know these children get exposed to these kind of sports, start to like it, ask for memberships and things like that. So it's it's a sort of mutual uh, win of all of these people involved. So the the, the children are taken care of. There's something some. Th- some Provision of of um, um, guidance after school, and it's done in, t- in environments where it is very um, invitation. I mean, it's inviting to to be very active, and so it's it's just one example. But um, transportation, for instance, it, it it shows you how difficult it actually is. For instance, we've taken a policy that it should be possible for every child to walk or cycle to school. That means that you have uh, to have safe routes. Uh, You have to have a school policy that you have enough bicycle sheds, for instance, that are safe and you can be locked. Uh, You need to provide bicycle lessons for children who cannot ride a bike, for instance. Um, And so you have to provide a lot of different opportunities. You have to actually... The reason why a lot of children in the Netherlands are not walking or cycling to school is because it's too dangerous in front of the school where all the cars are dropping off the children. Mm. So you have to have also a, a regulation that you cannot park within say half a mile or so from the school. So it needs a lot of regulations to improve that sort of atmosphere that children are um, given the permission of their parents to unsupervised or unguided to cycle and walk to schools. It needs transportation, safety, it needs education, it needs all kinds of other things. It's just one example of when you do this, actually we do see a change. Children do walk and cycle more to school. Uh, but it involves a lot of changes. Uh, and so it's easy to, to talk about, but it's more difficult to bring about. Uh, but working together with lots of people is actually possible. So you've
0: talked thus far about physical activity examples. Are there food oh, yeah. and dietary-related examples yeah, of things? Yeah, that of are of all,
1: they, they are similar. It's uh, the same. We have a school policy about vending machines and canteens that they should increase the healthier options and provide drinking water and things like that to schools also there you know some schools are economically dependent on, on their vending machines and the the profits of the canteens and uh, the profits are increasing with unhealthier options because they're eaten more and they're more popular and so it requires compensation for that kind of thing so it's not something you bring about easily but it can be done if you if you do the sort of a systematic approach by different uh, stakeholders. So you, you have to have the companies providing better alternatives in the vending machines. It is a school policy to provide better foods in the canteen and to have a sort of price regulation in a sort of micro world that is much more easy to uh, accomplish than any national strategy. And so these are, these are food-related items also. They have to do with also the allowance of fast food outlets to be uh, uh, opened near schools. You know, so
0: what, what would be an example of a rule there? Just no fast food outlets allowed within a certain diameter or radius around yeah, the school? Yeah.
1: There are examples of such policies that are uh, around, and they, they actually help. Because if you um, restrict the number of unhealthy choices in the school canteens, the children might just go and take their money and buy it somewhere else. So you need to have the schools that say you know children are not allowed to leave the schoolyard. And if they do, they cannot actually go to the other side of the school and just buy junk food there. So it, it needs a combination of regulations to make it effective. And I think that's that's what we've sort of slowly understood, that you need this sort of integrated multi, multi-sector sec, sector kind of approach.
0: I can't imagine the food companies would be very happy about those sort of regulations. How do they respond?
1: Well... In, at first, they're always against this. But when you talk to them and say, you know, if you're in your vending machines, if half of the options that you put, you know, 90% would be sort of sugary beverages and maybe some light versions. And if you t- talk to them and say, you know, if, if you would provide half of them so with water or, or, or other alternatives, then it's actually not so, it's not impossible for them to do so. So to increase the choice or to change the choice or to change the default choice, is not something which may necessarily be bad for business. I mean, they just have to rethink and rework on this. And uh, it's the same with portion sizes too. It's uh, We've been talking to local cinemas where they have reduced the portion sizes of the soft drinks or the popcorn and the mm-hmm. snacks that are being sold in the intermission or before the film. And um, uh, once they do it, I, I, I think it doesn't hurt their business actually. Uh, And so they have to rethink it, and they just haven't thought about it. They just think that the the bigger, the more attractive it becomes for customers, but that's not true. Is it too early to know how well these approaches work,
0: or are there data collected on them?
1: There are data collected all the time. We do a lot of research on on pricing, on on portion size reduction, on labeling, uh, on labeling the portions also. What is a normal portion? What is the mid-size portion? Because most consumers actually will go for the... The one that's called medium or normal or you know the middle one in the variety, and so if you change just change the order and the the variation in in, in portion sizes, for instance, you'll have a profound change in the automatic selection that people make. So if you
0: decrease the size uh, the size of every portion of soft drink, for example, yeah, they would still go for the middle would still one. Still go for the middle one, but it right. would be fewer ounces and therefore fewer calories. Right, very right. interesting. Well, it's nice that there have been data collected on these sort of things, because then it'll help us know what works and how that might be rolled out to broader communities. Right. It's a very interesting thing to do. Now, you also have made some progress on the management of obesity right. and how, in medical care settings, obesity gets dealt with. What are you doing on that front?
1: Well, there's usually a very big divide between prevention of obesity and then management of obesity. And with a we've taken a sort of chronic disease perspective on obesity, so that if you have Obesity as a child or adolescent, I mean, this requires long-term investment in changing behavior. It cannot be solved with a quick solution. It's not a curable disease, if you like. And um, um, we made the health professionals understand that they have to invest in prevention and to start treatments earlier. And that's been very controversial, too, because you're sort of medicalizing people who are not ill, or not yet ill, but just have an increased risk of it, to provide health services for those people. On the other hand, uh, we find that you can do much more milder interventions earlier on with uh, uh, bigger effects and a lot of preventative action uh, that that will ensure, I mean, you'll you'll reduce the number of severely obese children dramatically if you have much more attention to early interventions, and so we, for that we actually had to to change the healthcare industry, but also the health insurance companies, some laws that were related to this. And what we see now is that actually uh, there's much more attention to early detection and diagnosis of problems arising, and so there there's care provided to this for the children that are really severely obese. There's long-term management and care that wasn't there before. Um, uh, and uh, that's all covered by the health insurance system. And by this, we actually calculated for the health insurance companies by investing, say, $100 million, which is quite a lot of money. They can actually save six or $700 million later on by preventing diabetes and severe obesity and long-term treatment. So it's been actually very cost-effective. But they had to, to really rethink their way of, of looking at this problem also.
0: It's amazing to think that there's that much return per dollar by oh, yes. doing these preventive services. I, I mean, it, we
1: know that for high-risk people who are, who are obese and high ri- or overweight and high at risk for diabetes, just mild lifestyle interventions can just postpone the incidence of diabetes for, with about 10 years or so of healthy lives. Amazing. And that's amazing.
0: Good. Well, thank you. This work is very insightful. And as I've said before, I think some of the work going on in Europe with both policy and intervention, some and, and intervention is some of the most and management of obesity some of the most progressive in the world so i appreciate you sharing that with us thank you it's my pleasure our guest was dr jacob Seidel, professor of nutrition and health at the free university in amsterdam in the netherlands and one of europe's most distinguished nutrition researchers please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of um, topics and um, resources available on nutrition and food policy, including a free email newsletter that goes out monthly and a list of the other excellent podcasts that we recorded. Thank you very much.